0: This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you.
1: Good evening, everyone. A joy to be with all of you once again, whether you are here in the Buddha Hall at Beginner's Mind Temple or you are online in the online Zendo. Uh, temple. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Tenzin David Zimmerman, and I'm the Abiding Abbot here at City Center. And um, if you haven't been around for a little bit, uh, we are in the midst of a ten-week practice period, the fall practice period, uh, which I am co-leading with Abbot Ed over there. And uh, the theme of our practice period, the ongo, is an appropriate response encountering Suzuki Roshi's teachings on the Blue Cliff Record. So for every Dharma talk uh, on Wednesday nights and some of the Saturdays, as well as the uh, Tuesday class, we are exploring a classic koan collection called the Blue Cliff Record, the Hegegan Roku. And in the process, we're also incorporating um, Suzuki Roshi's commentary on it, which we fortunately have. So for tonight, I'm gonna take up another koan in the collection and uh, explore with you this time around. um, A koan that has, kind of goes by two different names. Uh, It's found as case three in the Blue Cliff Record and it's case 36 in the Book of Serenity. So sometimes the koan collections, the koans show up in a number of of the uh, different collections. And uh, in the Blue Cliff Record, Book of Serenity, it goes by Master Ma is unwell and in other collections, it goes by sun Buddha, moon Buddha. Anyone familiar with us? Many of you? Great, okay. We'll get to revisit it together. And uh, this is how the case goes, the main case. Great Master Ma was unwell. The temple superintendent asked him, teacher, how has your venerable health been in recent days? The great master said, sun face Buddha, moon Buddha. So for anyone who may not have encountered Master Ma before, uh, he also goes by the name of Matsu uh, Daoyi, and in Japanese, uh, he's known as Baso Doitsu. He was, um, lived from 709 to 788, and he was one of the most famous Chan masters in the Tang Dynasty. Uh, and he appears in a significant number of koans, so he's kind of all over the place. Uh, in Zen literature, he was the chief disciple of Nan Yue, uh, and Nan Yue's teacher was Wei Neng, who uh, is the sixth ancestor. Uh, and so that makes uh, Matsu Master Ma the eighth Zen patriarch. And he had a lot of disciples. He had a, apparently, I've seen different numbers, but the highest I've seen is 139 disciples. So he was a very busy teacher,
0: right?
1: And um, Matsu was particularly known for his strength, for his vitality, as well as for his rather strange appearance. Um, It said that when he um, spread out his tongue, when he put his tongue out, it would go and cover his nose. the pretty long tongue there. And uh, he also had two wheel-shaped marks on his feet, okay? whether or not they were birthmarks or something else. He was said to walk like an ox. And he looked, uh, he had a tendency that when he looked at people and looked at things, he kind of stare like a tiger. Right? So he had this kind of intimidating stare. And he's accredited uh, with a number of Zen innovations, which were um, I kind of, you might find them as the classic uh, expressions, the katsu, the sudden shout. Hi, katsu, and also the uh, kiyosaku, and we don't use the kiyosaku anymore. It's the long stick that uh, will be often be used in Zen on the shoulders. Actually, it's very helpful. It soft, it's actually relaxes the muscles in the shoulders. It's not actually a matter of beating someone, but it actually energizes the shoulders and helps to wake up. Um, and then also asking abrupt questions to people, particularly when they were kind of going out the door. He you know shouted them or yelled at them and asked them a, a strange question and usually led them to some kind of enlightenment experience. Um, and uh, however, in this story, Master Mao is sick. In fact, he's very sick. Uh, in Some cases it says he's on his deathbed. And uh, this is the case, how it's presented uh, in Record Ma- of Matsu. We're told that about a month before his passing, uh, Matsu climbed a nearby mountain. He went for, for a walk. And as he was walking through the mountain's forest, he saw a cave that was kind of flat. And he told his attendant, this ruined old body of mine will return to this ground next month. Okay, So basically indicating that he knew his life was coming to an end. And uh, once he said that, they returned to the monastery. And not long after, Master Ma became ill. And so you know, the monastery director wanted to check in on him and knocked on his door and came in and said, How is the venerable feeling these days? And Master Ma replied, Nichi Men Butsu, Gachi men Butsu, which is Sun Face Buddha, Moon Face Buddha. And then on the first day of the next month, so literally a month later, having taken a bath, he sat down, crossed his legs, and passed away. So another one of these Zen teachers who dies sitting, face, uh, sitting dies sitting upright, right in zazen posture. So, what do we make of Master Ma's response? Nichimen Butsu, gachi men Butsu, Sun Face Buddha, Moon Face Buddha. In a, a text known as Buddha Name Scripture, it explains that Sun Face Buddha is eternal and lives in the world for 1800 years, or in other words, eternity. Right? And uh, the Sun Face Buddha dwells in this kind of limitless time and place. And the Moon Face Buddha uh, is one day of life. It's uh, a 24 hour period, a day and night. And so the moon-faced Buddha is our everyday human life, our everyday life of karma and and limitations. The uh, moon-faced Buddha also means that life is a succession of moments, moment after moment, after moment, after moment, right? And we're never gonna necessarily know when our last moment will be. And the sun faced Buddha, on the other hand, is all the radiance of Buddha condensed into this present moment. So, the phrase sun faced Buddha, moon faced Buddha, it expresses our universal human situation. We are all fragile, impermanent, limited beings. We're here today, we're gone tomorrow. And yet, in that very limitation and uncertainty, there is still still an eternal and radiant Buddha. And because of this, because that radiant Buddha is present with us moment by moment, even in our limitedness, we can find dignity and beauty and a chance for a, a, a vivid spiritual life. And so regardless of the circumstances, we can find a sense of peace, happiness, satisfaction, you know, uh, even though our, you know, our strengths and our weaknesses, our joys and our sorrow, you know, all those are different from each other. So we're very unique, you know, we're
0: particular, we're all moon, our own particular moon face, and yet we all share sun face. So whether sun-faced Buddha or a moon-faced Buddha, both are Buddhas.
1: Both are perfect and complete in themselves. So we've got a health-robust Buddha or a sick and dying Buddha, and both are perfectly fine. And so his is commentary on this koan, Suzuki Roshi says that the difference between Matsu and ordinary people is that, Whatever happens to Matsu, he can accept things as it is. Sun-face Buddha is good, moon-faced Buddha is good. Whatever it is, that is good. All things are Buddha, and there is no Buddha even. Hmm. Even though I die, it is all right with me, and it is all right with you. And if it is not all right, you are not a Zen student it is quite all right, that is Buddha. If I suffer while I'm dying, that is suffering Buddha, and there is no confusion in it." So he's saying true acceptance of the way things are is the Zen way. That's what a Zen student is practicing, accepting things just as it is doesn't mean you you can't also change them, but you have to start from the place of this is it. This is reality. This is things as it is. I see that. I accept it. Now, how am I going to work with it, right? So everything is all right when we have this open, inclusive mind, this expansive mind where we're open to all the experience that we're experiencing. It's all right because it can't be any other way. And so whether or not we deem it at some point good or bad,
0: can we start from the foundation of it's all right. All experience is of Buddha. And then Suzuki Roshi continues. He says,
1: maybe everyone will struggle because of physical agony or spiritual agony, but that is not a problem. We should be very grateful to have a limited body like yours or mine. If you had a limitless life, it would be a great problem for you. Do you agree? Without limitation, nothing exists. So we should enjoy it. The only way to enjoy our life is to enjoy the limitation given to us. So I think that's kind of a provocative statement that Suzuki Roshi is making, that the only way to enjoy our life is to enjoy the limitation given to us? How many of us are willing to enjoy the limitations given to us? I don't know about you, but I have some difficulty at times accepting limitation on my life, right? Particularly if it's limitations on my personal health. I had COVID about a month ago, and I was like, "Hmm, no, I don't want this. That's not what I want. Uh, My well-being or limitation on my happiness or my prosperity, Those are not limitations, I feel so easy, accepting. And yet, as Izuku Roshi notes, without limitations, including the limitation of death,
0: right? Nothing would exist. There's nothing that is impermanent. And because uh, everything that comes together
1: is gonna come apart again. It's just the way it is. And life persists because of impermanence. We're only here because of change. Because things have changed, we are here. We're able to be here now. So our effort as practitioners is to really see and feel this truth and accept it. And furthermore, only when we have incorporated impermanence, change, and life's difficulties into our living as something that's necessary, that's acceptable, that's fine, okay, this is what is, you know, rather than kind of uh, something to be feared or avoided at all costs. Only then can we really find a deeper sense of happiness and ease. You know? It's a happiness and ease that actually is all embracing, that's inclusive, that's wide and expansive. It has room for difficulty. It has room for an impermanence. It has room for limitation. So our suffering usually, I don't know if you've noticed this for yourself, usually comes about our resisting, our our denying or rejecting what is, by turning away from the difficulties. I don't want that. Or why me, right? Why does this always happen? Why do bad things always happen to me? Why do things go the way I want it? we might be complaining, you know, or we might lament, you know, if it only weren't so, if only things were different, you know, then I'd be happy, you know, then the world would be a better place. But our practice is to be able to abide and find a sense of rest within the limitations, within the dis-ease, and even within the disease, if we have some disease, right? to find a way to be with the experience that comes from a place of compassion, from care. Uh, You know, it's something that we want to be able to extend not only to ourselves, but to others around us, how they are practicing and working, working with their own sense of limitation. And we only really learn to appreciate our life and its preciousness through consciously embracing its limitations. What would that be to consciously embrace the limitations of your life,
0: the problems, or what you perceive as a problem, maybe? So
1: elsewhere in his commentary, Suzuki Roshi says, we should understand our everyday activity in two ways and be able to react either way without a problem. So two ways to understand our everyday activity. One way is to understand it dualistically, as good or bad, right or wrong. And the other way is the understanding of oneness. So now uh, Zen koans often present to us and they they guide us through kind of an an interplay between the relative and the absolute or the ultimate. So you could say the dualistic aspect and the the oneness aspect, right? What we see in Master Ma's response, it encompasses both a dualistic or relative uh, realm and the ultimate realm or the realm of oneness. So he's able to say he equally dwells in both, that he feels great and unconcerned from the absolute point of view, from the oneness point of view, and that he's sick and he feels lousy from the relative point of view both are simultaneously true it's not a problem they're not in conflict with each other right so of course our small grasping self doesn't want to be sick doesn't want to die right nor do we want those we care about to become sick or die but great teacher ma the effect is saying you know i'm okay my moon face buddha is dying but my sun face buddha is living the eternal life. So I may live for 1,800 years, or I may only live for a day and a night. And neither prospect concerns me. In this moment, I am here, right here, in this moment. This is the only life I have. I am alive in this moment. This is the only life you will ever have, right here, right now, in this moment. There is no other life. So don't go looking
0: for it. Right? And that's Zen's primary orientation, living in the now. Right? Not
1: in the life of yesterday, not in the life of the future. Buddha living
0: Buddha right here, right now. This is the only place the Buddha lives. Of course, it's an internal Buddha, so it's all throughout
1: time and space.
0: So whether I am a Sikh Buddha,
1: or a healthy Buddha, or a cold Buddha, or a hot Buddha. We were studying uh, Tangshan's No Heat, No Cold yesterday in our class. A happy Buddha, a sad Buddha. Uh, Buddha, Buddha nature, This kind of another way of thinking of it is this limitless, luminous awareness, right? Is always the common denominator in all of these manifestations of Buddha. So Buddha is Buddha is Buddha is Buddha. And with all the fluctuating myriad appearances, our our effort is to take the posture of an upright Buddha. And it's in this simple truth that we can find rest and equilibrium, or what uh, Suzuki Roshi often calls composure, right? So that's why we practice, Suzuki Roshi tells us. That is why we engage in Zazen, to be able to accept things as it is and have complete and um, composure and uh, equanimity in our life. So that we're not being tossed about by, you know, our reactivity to the vicissitudes of life. So how might we be like Master Ma? equally able to find a measure of composure and ease when facing any type of situation. Sick, healthy, alive, dying, preferred or not. And Suzuki Roshi and other dharma teachers throughout history have repeatedly reminded us that such equanimity blooms from the wisdom and the spaciousness of zazen zazen practice, our meditation practice, it comes from the recognition that what we fundamentally are is not limited to, or bounded
0: by condition, karmic consciousness or experience. Now, there's a verse by Shwedo who gathered
1: the Blue Cliff Record in its initial form together that accompanies this particular corn, which I find quite moving and I want to unpack with you. And this is how it goes. Sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, what kind of people were the ancient ones? For 20 years I have suffered bitterly. How many times have I gone down into the blue dragon's cave for you? This this distress is worth recounting. Clear-eyed, patch monks and practitioners should not take it like me. Sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, what kind of people were the ancient emperors? So this is not a critique of emperors, right? It's just actually a query of who are we. The lives of the ancestors, regardless of uh, their social status, pale in comparison to the infinite life of sun-faced Buddha, And even if you have all the conditions for an easy life, you must still go into the cave
0: of practice and allow your relative self to become undone. For 20 years, I have suffered bitterly.
1: So this speaks to the need for strong, endless, continuous practice throughout the ups and downs of our lives, the loss, the sufferings, uh, as well as the blessings, the good things. Each of us has suffered. Anyone here not suffered? Yeah, I didn't think so, right? So no one else is outside of that. How many times have I gone down into the blue dragon's cave for you? And this line references a a Chinese legend in which jewels of many colors are hidden in a cave guarded by a dragon in the depths of the sea. And that anyone who wants to obtain the treasure must dive into the depths, enter the cave, and wrestle it. From the dragon's mouth. So who has the courage and the perseverance to make such an effort? Have you met any dragons in your life? Were they guarding any jewels, any treasure? Did you wrestle them? What was the outcome if you did? Here's a another koan verse that also references the blue dragon cave. And this one's from a a collection of Zen teaching stories titled Koans of the Way of Reality. This is number 103. Each crisis an opportunity, yet if you fail to act, you miss it by a thousand miles. The cave of the blue dragon is ominous. Only the fearless dare to enter. It is here that the forest of patterns is clearly revealed. The myriad
0: forms evidence. It is here that the one bright pearl is hidden. So where is the cave of the blue dragon? Well, nowhere else than inside ourselves, right?
1: The cave of the blue dragon is that place within each of us where we store all our stuff, all of our, you could say, psychological bilge, right? So to speak, the stuff we don't want to deal with. Anyone have any of that? I should see more hands in the room. I know, yeah, okay, okay. So all the karmic sludge, right? That we'd rather not have see the light of day. Right? when you push something away, when you deny or suppress something, right? it goes underground into the dark tunnels of our karmic consciousness. Yeah. So this includes all of our fears, the shames, doubts, regrets, anxieties, everything that we have buried deep within us, hoping that by shutting them off, that they won't have much power over us, right? Or that the world won't see what a tremendous insecure mess we really are. Now, obviously, it's understandably very difficult to go into the Blue Dragon's cave. It takes a certain degree of willingness and a fearlessness to do that. In many ways, the process of entering into the Blue dragon cave The cave of the blue dragon turns you into a child in some way, because it it reminds you, it takes you back to that place of vulnerability again, where so much of that, what you pushed away initially is very young in many cases. And so in the cave of the blue dragon, the forest of karmic patterns is clearly revealed. Once you get in there, you see all around you, the patterns of your karma. You know, the structure of the cave itself is made up of pillars of karma built up over time. So we see the way we function, what we're about, where we're sticking, what our buttons are, all the myriad forms of our routines and, and denials. Everything is evident in the blue dragon cave. And it's in the cave of the blue dragon that we find out about ourselves things we don't want to be remembered or recall, right? And it's in the cave
0: of the blue dragon that the one bright pearl is hidden. It takes courage. It takes effort and persistence to go into this cave and retrieve its treasures.
1: How many times have I gone down to the blue
0: dragon cave for you? Who is that you? Small frightened self, another self, another being? Is that you, the sun-faced Buddha, the moon-faced Buddha? Buddha, Buddha, Buddha nature itself? Is the you, the bright
1: treasure you have been seeking your whole life? And while it's obviously Each of us who personally has to go into the cave, who has to do the work, the hard work of practicing with and excavating our karmic conditioning. There are also others who are willing to make the perilous journey for us and with us. So you're not alone, right? Someone like a Dharma teacher or a Dharma friend, a loved one, who has a, a measure of understanding and freedom and is willing to go into the muck and the dark, dark difficulties of the dragon's cave for their students, their friends, their loved ones, for all beings despite the risk that it may bring. Right?
0: So another word for that kind of being is a bodhisattva. Right? A bodhisattva
1: doesn't go into the blue dragon cave just for themselves, just to save themselves. They also go to be a benefit to others. So in order to work and help in the world of samsara, we must be like Jizo Bodhisattva. This Bodhisattva who's willing to go into the hell realms to offer myriad beings dwelling there some respite from their suffering. And as bodhisattvas, we may ourselves encounter great hardship and suffering you know, by choosing to go into these difficult realms to be a benefit to others. But this distress and suffering is worth recounting and worth enduring because doing so offers ease and hope to our fellow humans. We might eat even be able to show them a way out of the cave of sorrows and into freedom. Clear-eyed,
0: patch-willed monks should not take this lightly. So last week, our Friday movie night here at Beginner's Mind Temple, we have a, a movie night, sometimes every Friday, sometimes every other Friday, you know, frequently. Anyhow, last
1: Friday, a number of residents and I watched an inspirational documentary called The Rescue, right? And the movie uh, chronicles um, the, I think, rather enthralling against all odds story that transfixed the world in the summer of 2018, right? It was this the daring rescue of 12 boys who were between the age of 11 and 16 and their 25-year-old soccer coach from deep inside a flooded cave in Northern Thailand. And they had been trapped there for 18 days, Has anyone seen the movie or you recall the incident, the story? Some of you do. And uh, this movie, The Rescue was made by National Geographic and uh, it's available on Disney Channel. So if you wanna see it, it's really quite well done. I think of all the, there's now about four or five movies about this incident and I think this is probably one of the better ones. There's actually another one that's a drama, trauma, dramatized version, uh, it's called 13 Lives. And uh, it's, uh, that one's on Amazon. It's also, so I also, think it's pretty well done. So as a documentary, the rescue successfully weaves its archival and interview and uh, reenactment footage to recount the events of the rescue as they unfolded. And you might recall from the news that um, the wild boars, and this was the name of the soccer team, the Thai soccer team, right? They had, after um, game of practice, ventured into what are called the Tam Leong Cave System. And they wanted to celebrate a, a birthday of one of their teammates. And um, they had only planned to be there for a very short time. They're gonna go in, do a little excursion, and then come back out. And so they, they really, but they weren't prepared. They didn't have any provisions with them. Uh, maybe a little bit of water. And then just so happened it began to rain and it began to rain very, very heavily. It's actually the monsoon season came like two weeks earlier and they hadn't anticipated this. And uh, the cave quickly flooded and the boys were trapped. And uh, so they were missing for 10 days and were finally found by divers, cave divers, a mile within the cave. So just imagine these divers had to swim a mile to get to these boys, right? And they were found on a ledge, and uh, this whole, you know, it took once they were found eight more days for the boys to be rescued. So they were in the cave for a total of eighteen days. Ten thousand people helped, right, including. A 100 divers, scores of rescue workers, soldiers were there, medical professionals, and other experts from around the world. All these people converged to save these uh, 13 boys. And uh, unfortunately, in the process, one of the Navy SEALs, the Thai Navy SEALs died. His um, oxygen ran ran out and he drowned. And um, they really, they had to figure out how to get the boys out of the cave, very complicated system where I won't go into, but basically uh, drugging them, masking them, and swimming them out. It took three days to get all 13 boys out during this very complicated process. And at the very end, just as they got the very last boy out, the pumps, one of the main pumps that was keeping the cave, the cave, the first few chambers, the water low enough so they could go in and out, um, broke. And suddenly the water started pouring up again and rushing in. And the few rescuers that were still there, they got out just in time. But literally, um, had it been an even hour more, they probably would have all died. So I don't know about you, for those of you who followed it, I was very captivated. You know, I was watching the news, touched by the boys' situation, you know, each day tracking the initial search and then the rescue efforts and finally the repercussion, the what's the word, uh, recuperation of the boys. And I could just imagine them sitting in the dark, losing track of time. They didn't know what time it was. They didn't know what day it was when they were found, right? Sitting there in great discomfort. You know, cold, hungry, scared, uncertain of what was gonna happen. And sitting there surrounded by an impenetrable sense of
0: the unknown. And of course, experiencing fear, great fear. I may not survive. The cave of the blue dragon is ominous.
1: Only the fearless dare to enter. How many times have I gone
0: down into the blue dragon's cave for you? Now there were uh, those who initially
1: gave up hope finding the boys and rescuing them, even some of the experts, you know? So, uh, and when they did find them, they recognized that it would take so much effort to achieve them that it may not be possible and that some of them may die as they try to actually bring them out.
0: Right?
1: And two of the cave experts, uh, divers, that had been brought had actually at one point decided to give up. They said, this is, this is not something we can do. And they had thought about going home because uh, they thought this is pointless. But then they had a change of hearts and decided to try one more time. And this time, they successfully located the boys. And the divers, when they first came up, in the cavern, there's two of them, you know. Uh, He said that when he first came upon the boys, the minute he found them, he
0: realized that the responsibility was now morally on him to save them, right? He felt morally obligated to save these boys now that he had found them.
1: And this is the ethical orientation of a bodhisattva, right? The minute I take the bodhisattva vow to save all beings, the responsibility is then morally on me to make my best effort. I must commit my whole being to this endeavor.
0: There's no giving up. There's no leaving anyone behind if you've taken the bodhisattva vow. How many times will I go into the blue dragon cave for you? And just like the the rescue
1: divers went back into the cave over and over to care for the boys, to bring them food, you know, medicine, to eventually extract the boys. Despite great fear themselves, they talked about their own fear. They talked about the tremendous risk that they themselves had to endure, right? So too must the Bodhisattva be willing to return to the cave of samsara again and again to free those who are trapped there. How even, even if we ourselves initially escape from the cave of the blue dragon, eventually we realize that our practice and our Bodhisattva vow requires that we return, not just once, but again and again, despite the dangers and pearls, pearls. We enter the cave of the blue dragon as many times as necessary until we have helped liberate every being who's there. Now. One of the notable details of this story is that when the boys were first found by the two British divers, they were reportedly meditating. Remember that detail? It turns out that their coach, whose name was uh, Ekapo Wang, had trained in meditation as a Buddhist monk, right? For about a decade uh, before he had to leave the monastery uh, to take care of his uh, sick grandmother. So he uh, entered the monastery at the age of 12 because he had been orphaned by his parents. And then he left when he was 22. So not too long uh, before this incident, a couple of years. So he taught the boys to meditate by following their breath in order to um, keep them calm and less anxious and be able to also uh, preserve their energy. And in the midst of great uncertainty, the coach invited the boys to join him in an upright posture. Right? The posture of zazen, helping them to find this place of fearlessness and composure despite their distress. Helping them to rest as Buddhas, instead upright as Buddhas in the face of great uncertainty. I don't know if you saw, not too long after this was um, discovered, uh, made public, there was a cartoon that was circulating in which the artist had shown the coach uh, with a lap full of the Of tiny boars, little boars, you know, uh, and peacefully all meditating. And he's depicted holding them in his cosmic mudra. So when we sit, we create here in Zen Center a mudra, right? And the idea is we're holding the whole universe in this mudra. So he was holding these boys in his mudra, teaching them to meditate,
0: right?
1: Connecting to the whole world at the same time. And another detail, detail that I found intriguing was that rather than just sit in the cave kind of helplessly mourning their situation, the coach had the boys spend a good of time digging a hole. So with the limited light that they had, their flashlights, he had them dig a hole. Um, the boys had dug a 16-foot deep hole before being rescued. That's a pretty deep hole, right? And He said he wanted to give them a sense of purpose and direction, helping to focus their attention on making their best effort despite the situation. And they were making effort to free themselves even though they didn't necessarily know what the outcome would be, you know, nor knowing whether there were others who were simultaneously making their best effort to save the boys and when i heard of the boys effort to dig their way out i thought of the analogy of the baby chick who's in the egg poking its way out of the shell from the inside while the mother is also uh, pecking from the outside to free her loved one right? so we have you know the, the boys inside digging away you have the rescuers outside digging their way in and so Likewise, well, we as Zen students, we need to make a sincere and dedicated effort on the inside of our practice to liberate ourselves from the blue dragon's cave. Our teachers and our Sangha friends, right? They're also making a concentrated effort to help us break free of the blue dragon's cave, right? So if we observe carefully, we will actually see that the whole world beyond us is also making a great effort to free us. It may not seem that way at times. You may not recognize that at times. It may feel at times that you know, it's actually trying to push you back into the hole, but actually the world is trying to free you, right? So we, we have to do our inner work. We must sum up the courage to, to fearless return again and again into the blue dragon cave of our delusions and our fears and our karmic tendencies. But we are never alone
0: in this endeavor. The whole world is supporting us to become free in its own way. When
1: the boys were asked what they had learned from their experience of being trapped in the cave, right? Uh, one of the boys, a 13-year-old, Poonbyam, said he felt stronger. Said, I have more patience, endurance, and tolerance. That's pretty great. Another of the boys, uh, his name was Adul, said it taught him not to live life carelessly. Mm-hmm. And so while many of the boys wanted to be pro soccer players, you know, like when they grow up, at least four of them said they hoped to become Navy SEALs so that they could help others, right? 12 of the boys also took temporary ordination for nine days as a way to express their gratitude for having survived the ordeal, to acknowledge all those who had assisted in the rescue, as well as to honor the former Thai SEAL who had died trying to save them,
0: right?
1: And how wonderful it is to hear how out of this very life-and-death situation, the Bodhisattva vow arose for many of these boys. They wanted to manifest it. They wanted to live a life of vow. And may it be that way for all of us. For we are
0: all in the blue dragon's cave, wrestling with the great matter of life and death. Mm -hmm. So I'll conclude by saying, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha,
1: how many times have I gone down into the dragon's
0: cave for you? 1800 years, 18 days, a day or and a night? Each time, Buddha, Buddha seeking Buddha. And when I'm healthy or when I'm sick, When things
1: go my way or things don't go my way, Buddha. And when I'm the person I want to be, or the Bodhisattva
0: I vow to be, or when I'm the person who's lost the cave, Buddha. So it's
1: not that there's no caring whether suffering, our suffering is active or not in any moment, or how it is that we're living our life. All of that is daily practice, making the effort. It's very important to continue that practice. It's just that when we can be right where we are, right here, with complete willingness to go down to the depths of the dragon's cave in every moment, that's where we find the treasure, the treasure of aliveness, of wholeness, and of liberation. And being in sangha together, being in community together with those who are also entering the dragon's cave helps us tremendously, right? It encourages us and gives us a sense of confidence when we're feeling challenged to practice because of whatever the circumstances are. For all of us making this effort, what I wish for myself and others is fearlessness and composure that whatever we're facing, whether it's health or sickness, pleasure, pain, joy and sorrow, ups and downs of life, birth and death, that we find our stability and our composure in our zazen posture
0: as we meet is rising. And may you find the pearl in the blue dragon's
1: cave, every moment. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma Talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.